Magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Indivisible, the big network of local Democratic Party activists that sprang up after Trump's victory. They have at least one grassroots group in every congressional district. And now that the Democratic primary candidates are fighting for the nomination, we wondered what Indivisible groups were doing in the primaries. Joan Walsh has investigated We'll speak with her later in the hour. But first, the Koch brothers, Charles and David, spent hundreds of millions supporting right-wing Republicans who gave tax breaks to their gigantic oil and gas businesses, along with cuts in regulations. They're probably the most important funders of the opponents of action to reduce climate change. David died last month, but the Evil he did will live on probably for generations, and Charles continues to run the operations. How did the Koch brothers transform an obscure oil company based in Wichita into a $110 billion colossus? For that story, we turn to Christopher Leonard. He's written for the Washington Post and Bloomberg Businessweek, and he's the author of the new bestseller, Cokeland. The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America. Chris Leonard, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, before we talk about the politics of the Koch brothers, we should talk about how they got so rich, which is really the subject of your book. Their current wealth is $120 billion, something like that. Their fortune is bigger than Bill Gates's, bigger than Jeff Bezos. But the Cokes didn't invent a new product or revolutionize our lives like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. So the big question is, how did they do it? Let's go back to the beginning. We know how Donald Trump got rich. His father, Fred, gave him money. When he was three years old, Donald Trump was getting $200,000 a year in today's dollars from his father's empire. Donald Trump was a millionaire by age eight. Is that the way it worked for the Koch's father, who was also named Fred? Well, here's the similarity. The similarity is a a massive inheritance. Uh, David and Charles Koch were, they were two of four sons born in Wichita, Kansas, and even by the time they were born, their father, Fred, was a wealthy industrialist. He owned a big stake in an oil refinery and ranches and, and engineering companies that serviced oil refineries. So they definitely inherited a very large company, but there's no doubt that since 1967, when Charles Koch took over the company, they have expanded it dramatically. It, ha- it has exploded. And how did that happen? I really think there are two elements to it. One is this brilliant, long-term strategic thinking that we've seen displayed by Charles Koch, who's really been the driving force behind this corporate empire. And then the second half of the equation is the kinds of businesses that they have focused on all these decades, like oil refining being a key example. There are lots of deep political and economic things going on in the oil refining industry that make it so profitable. It's not just a story of, you know, innovation and successful capitalism. I mean, this is a a pretty anti-competitive business that everybody relies on that delivers enormous profits. And, And so that's at the heart of this story, too. But I think the quick headline answer is Charles Koch and his brother David took over this company in 1967, 
They were incredibly patient in how they managed it, how they reinvested their profits, and they did build one of the largest fortunes in the United States doing it. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. You say the key to the Koch's rise to power, if there is a single one, was Charles buying control of the Pine Bend Refinery south of St. Paul in 1969. I don't think anybody else in 1969 thought that Pine Bend would be the key to becoming a billionaire. Why did Charles want to own it? The the importance of the Pine Bend refinery cannot be overstated. Yes, Charles Koch is one of his first moves as CEO to purchase it in 1969. And I think, you know, the guy has really great business sense, and, and he knows an opportunity when he sees it. But I think critically what sets Coke apart is that they think on this horizon of years instead of quarterly earnings. So he saw this asset, and he could see the profits that would, it would deliver over the next two, five, ten years, and that's why he bought it. But I think the performance of Pine Bend even outstripped anything Charles Coke could have envisioned at the time. And it really tells an important story, not just about America's energy system, but about our our political economy, if you will. And and here's the headline about why this one oil refinery, it was described to me as the cash cow, the crown jewel. It It has delivered billions in profits over decades. And why was that? The reasons are really fascinating. The Pine Bend Refinery, which is kind of obscurely hidden up there in, in suburban St. Paul, it refines oil from the tar sands area of Canada. This is high sulfur, quote-unquote, dirty crude oil that not many refineries can process because of its chemical composition. So because not many people can process it, there are just big supplies of this oil piling up up there at the border in Canada. Not many people can buy it. So Coke, as one of the few purchasers, gets this oil really cheap. It refines it, and then it turns around and sells gasoline from that oil into these markets in the upper Midwest, you know, Chicago, Minneapolis, areas like that where gasoline prices are extremely high because there aren't that many refineries up there in that region. So Coke is buying extremely cheap, and it's selling really high. But the big question is, why is that sort of bottleneck or that dysfunction in the energy economy allowed to continue? We haven't built a new oil refinery in this country since 1977. It's a really uncompetitive sector of our economy. Everybody relies on gasoline to get to work, so it's essentially an energy monopoly. But we haven't built a new oil refinery, strangely enough, in large part because of the Clean Air Act regulations that have created this huge regulatory hurdle to get into the business and that the existing oil refineries have truly exploited and manipulated the clean air laws to keep out any new competitors. So you see how Coke sits on top of these assets that are tremendously profitable and sort of shielded from competition. So Pine Bend had great economic advantages. It also had one economic obstacle to tremendous profits. The Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, the OCAW, had organized the Pine Bend Refinery Workers. That was a a good union. It was a time when unions were strong. Minnesota was a union state. 
What happened to the OCAW in the contract negotiations of 1973? So this is one of the most important stories in the book, I think. You know, this is right when Charles Koch buys the refinery. He has big plans and big visions, but as you stated, there's a very strong, almost militant labor union standing in his way in the, in the sense that You know, you go back to the 1970s, labor unions had a lot of power in this country. They didn't just bargain for higher wages and higher retirement benefits, but they bargained for what we would call workplace rules, which were safety rules, so that a certain employee at the refinery would only work on one machine, and that employee would get to know that machine really well, and if it broke, another employee would come fix it. Now, that that introduces inefficiencies into the business and it's frustrating for owners because you've got these kind of shackles on what you can do. Charles Koch vehemently opposed these kinds of limitations on management control of facilities. He has opposed labor unions from the beginning and he hired a guy named Bernard Paulson to come into the refinery And I wouldn't even say take a hard line on contract negotiations. He told the union, Bernard Paulson told me, that it was basically take it or leave it. Charles Koch has got a new way of doing things. You're either on board or you're not. And what resulted was a nine-month-long strike, bitter, bitter dispute. Koch was bringing in scab workers. It was bringing in workers via helicopter. They lived in bunker-like conditions. There was industrial sabotage. But Charles Koch never wavered in this fight. And in essence, Charles Koch broke the OCAW. After nine months, they came back to the table. They signed a contract. And I say they were essentially tamed from that point forward. Well, today, Pine Bend, still going strong, it's run by something called Flint Hills Resources, which is, I guess, a subsidiary of Koch Industries. But if you look up the Flint Hills website... It says their purpose is safeguarding the environment. It's all about ducks and forests. It's all about the Pine Bend Bluffs natural area, known for its, I quote, its stunning views of the upper Mississippi River Basin and its critical role in providing wildlife habitat. And Flint Hills Resources sponsors the Flint Hills Family Festival in St. Paul, which they describe as an annual multi-day event featuring performances, free activities, art making, and more. Families, I'm quoting, are swept away on adventures that spark imagination and inspire exploration, close quote. That doesn't seem to be the way that Charles Koch got control of the refinery in Pine Bend. You know, there's always more to the story. Let's fast forward to the year 1996 which actually plays a big role in why this facility is called Flint Hills Resources instead of Coke Refining. You know, at that time, there was a huge pollution problem at this refinery. The machinery was producing toxic ammonia levels that were way outside of the permit levels. And Coke managers, instead of shutting down the refinery to fix the problem, they chose to flush this ammonia-laden water out into the nearby wetlands and illegally pollute the wetlands. And, you know, the book tells the story of this one woman at the refinery who tried to get them to stop. She was an environmental engineer who tried to stand up to her bosses and get them to stop. And she was really marginalized and steamrolled. And I think that the reason for that 
it, it, it's it's this corporate culture of everybody moving in lockstep. You know, the old labor unions created a counterbalance, but once that was wiped away, the the sort of voices who got up and and tried to speak against the authority, they're they're not listened to as much. And anyway, you know, the federal authorities and the state authorities discovered this criminal wrongdoing at Pine Bend, and there was a huge record-breaking fine that was imposed on Koch for that. And it was after that very high-profile criminal action that they changed the name to Flint Hills Resources and, and kind of moved past the bad baggage that was locally attached to that word, you know, Koch refining. The real secret of the Koch brothers' empire is not just gaining control of these resources. You open your book with a scene in 1981 when four people from Morgan Stanley come to Wichita to propose to take the family uh, holdings public. Tell us that story. This is important. There's a reason I opened the book with this in 1981. These four Wall Street bankers fly to Wichita, and they've got a proposition for Charles Koch. Take your company public, which, it, common, which was common wisdom at the time. When you take the company public, you get access to all this money on Wall Street. And the bankers told Charles Koch if he, if he took the company public, he would get a $23 million bonus that night just by going public. I wow. think adjusted for inflation, it would be like $60 million today. He turns them down flat. The memo they write back to their bosses says he does not want this cash. The reasons are so interesting. He knew at the time that if he went public, he would be answerable to outside shareholders. So first of all, as we've established, he doesn't like sharing control. But second of all, it would have kind of enslaved Koch's management to the short-term thinking of, your profit statements over the next quarter, what's going to happen over the next three months. And he wanted to untether himself and and be able to think on a much longer-term horizon, which has really benefited the company. But there's such a fascinating little quote in the memo the bankers wrote after that, which is he told them, if we go public, outsiders are going to figure out how much money our commodities traders are making and the traders are worried that people will quit doing business with us if they realize how rich we're getting off of these trades. And I, I think that's so illuminating. We know that Coke is extremely secretive, and the secrecy is strategic. This company wins by knowing more about the world than its competitors, and it doesn't want outsiders to know what it knows or to know what it's about to do. And I think that that helps describe why the company is so private and so secretive. Well, now let's talk about politics. Were the Koch brothers always big donors to Republicans? The short answer to that is no. I'm thinking of a letter Charles Koch wrote in the 70s to the head of the Libertarian Party, where he just expressed disgust. Charles Koch has been disgusted with Republicans since the 70s. He sees them as just as corrupt as Democrats in the sense that they support government intervention in markets. Charles Koch, to back up a little bit, is is really a a hardcore ideologue who believes that government intervention in markets can only create more harm than good. He, He subscribes to these libertarian thinkers like von Mises and Hayek and people like that. So he's tried to stay away from Republican politics, but it was really around the 1990s and then the 2000s, that Koch realizes they've got to have a place at the table in Washington. They've got to be involved. They're just too big to basically hide in Wichita. 
And so their strategy has been to transform the Republican Party. As Charles Koch put it at one of his seminars in the early 2000s, you know, the Democrats are lost cause in their view, but they can push Republicans to embrace this libertarian, anti-government point of view. And that's what the Koch network has been patiently doing for decades. The striking thing to me is that even though the Koch brothers and the network they founded have donated hundreds of millions to Republicans over the last decade or two, they haven't been as successful as you might think. They did everything they could to keep Obama from being elected and then reelected, but of course they failed at that, and they opposed Trump in the Republican primaries in 2016. They really did not want Trump to be president, and they failed at that. So I wonder if you have any comment on that. I totally do, and it's such a great point, and I think about this a lot. I mean, you know, first of all, nobody's invincible. And, you know, part three of this book is called Goliath. Well, you know, Goliath got beaten, and, and I don't want to portray the Cokes as these all-seeing geniuses who are invincible by any stretch of the imagination, but I do want to say two key things. Koch's political activities are torn straight from the playbook of how they trade commodities. That's why you see all these shell companies and all these efforts to hide Koch's fingerprints. But for that reason, look, the White House really matters. And Coke, the Koch network knows that. But they know that there's a lot of other stuff that matters. And their real expertise, their real emphasis is on the machinery of government that is not just a high-profile, every four-year White House election. Koch has built a map of American political power that includes the state legislatures, the court system, very particular uh, emphasis on the United States Congress, and then, of course, the administrative agencies like EPA. Koch is engaged every day on sort of the subtextual level, on, on the subterranean level of affecting policy there. And so when I see stuff like, you know, they lose the White House, they, they backed out of the White House race when Trump won, I think it obscures the fact that they're not as focused on the White House. They're focused on the everyday machinery of government. I think that's very true. But even with that in mind, the second thing I wanted to say is that you're, you're totally right. These are not complete masterminds. And the Koch network played a huge role in facilitating the Tea Party. They didn't invent the Tea Party, they didn't create the Tea Party, but they rode the Tea Party wave. What Trump showed is that the Koch network was misreading these voters. The Tea Party was not a libertarian movement. The Tea Party wasn't reading von Mises and Hayek like Koch is. Donald Trump came in and spoke directly to those voters about issues like immigration, and uh, racial grievance, and a rigged economy, and even anti-billionaire stuff. And, and Trump took away those voters. Well, the big thing, of course, that the Koch operation was focused on, as you say, it was not immigration, it was not uh, Muslims in the United States, it was a carbon tax. And there is an important history to the politics of the carbon tax told in your book, Cokeland. And there's one reason I told this story. And that's because it was the front-burner, life-or-death lobbying issue for Coke Industries for decades. It is not coincidental that Coke ramps up spending by a massive amount in 2008, because this is the time when true bipartisan support 
for regulating greenhouse gas emissions becomes a reality. It's hard to remember now, but back in 2009, the United States House of Representatives passed a massive bill that was a Republican idea, a Republican idea called cap-and-trade to put a price on, on greenhouse gas pollution because markets need prices to work, and the cost of greenhouse gas emissions is going to be paid by everybody over decades. So this, this bill was trying to you know put a price on putting that carbon into the sky at this time. And this was an existential threat to Coke's fossil fuels business, which is still a huge part of their portfolio. And so that's why they activated to derail the cap-and-trade bill successfully, I, have, I should add. And, and they continue to lobby against any efforts, not just to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, but to stimulate competition to fossil fuels in the form of solar and, and wind power. They're, they're very active in that space right now. The Washington Post reported recently that the Cokes are not going to back Trump in 2020. They will stay out of the presidential race. And after that story appeared, Trump tweeted that the Koch network was a, quote, total joke and, quote, highly overrated. How big are the differences between the Cokes and Trump at this point? The differences are fascinating. So here's the difference. Here's the significant difference. The Koch network wants a libertarian free market utopia, no government. Donald Trump represents a so-called America first vision. He is willing to intervene in markets in ways that he perceives will benefit the people who elected him. He's willing to use tariffs. He's willing to trade up trade deals. He's talked about punishing corporations that offshore jobs. All of that stuff is totally anathema to the Koch brothers, well, and to Charles Koch, rather, I should say, now I apologize, and to the Koch network. Now, the significant area of agreement is that Trump and Koch want to absolutely dismantle what's called the administrative state, the regulatory agencies like EPA, OSHA, groups like that. Donald Trump has picked up the anti-global warming rhetoric that Koch has spent millions to kind of bake into the Republican intellect. Trump has picked up on that. So that's why he's talking about wind power being a hoax and, you know, we got to drill more oil and climate change is a hoax. They are on the same page with that. So it's a tense relationship. At the end of the day, the Koch people would be more than happy to see Donald Trump leave the stage. But in the meantime, you know, I show in my book they have aggressively helped Donald Trump attack the EPA. They transformed Trump's tax reform plan into a huge tax cut bill. So they're very active on the ground level to get policy wins out of the Trump administration. Last question. You've said the key to their financial success was keeping their company private. Keeping it private has another great advantage. They don't have to file public information so they can basically operate in secret. How did you uncover all these facts about Coke Industries when they keep everything secret? Well, first of all, it took a long time. It took years. And, you know, the first stage is I flew to Wichita several times. I flew to Atlanta, Portland, Oregon, Oklahoma City, Enid, Oklahoma, where they've got a fertilizer plant. You spend your nights and weekends knocking on doors, getting people to open up to you and getting people to talk. And then, interestingly enough... 
Coke doesn't file quarterly reports, but they bump up against transparency in other ways. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is this obscure little group that collects pipeline data on Coke. I found government investigations, litigation in the courts with depositions, a U.S. Senate investigation. Just with enough time, you can kind of unearth these documents that at least capture part of the Coke picture. And, you know, then you've got a, I had a whistleblower inside the company who gave me 10 years of internal safety documents that show that workplace injuries were rising at Georgia Pacific. So it's really just having the time to go back and to go back and to go back to people and then to unearth the points where Coke's operations are documented in black and white. Christopher Leonard, he wrote the book Cokeland, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America. It's totally fascinating and totally important. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Now it's time to talk about Indivisible. You may remember, that's the grassroots network of local activists that sprang up after Trump's victory. They've got at least one active local group in every congressional district. And now that the Democratic primary candidates are fighting for the nomination, we wondered what Indivisible groups were doing in the primaries. For a report, we turn to Joan Walsh. Of course, she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and a political analyst for CNN. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Glad to be back. Well, we've uh, interviewed Indivisible's co-founder Ezra Levin here on this show a couple of times, but remind us how this group was created, starting with the Indivisible Guide. Well, they were created kind of on the fly uh, by Ezra and his wife, Leah Greenberg, and some friends of theirs in this very sad days after Hillary Clinton's defeat. And because they had both worked for progressives in Congress and had seen the rise of the Tea Party, they thought that they would write a guide, the Indivisible Guide, to how local groups could basically block the Republican agenda with local activity, particularly in congressional districts. Their focus was both on strengthening the spine of Democrats, because there was a lot of talk, you may remember in those early days, about, well, maybe we have to collaborate with Trump on infrastructure or something, we just can't say no, but also on pressuring Republicans. And so it began as simply a, an online guide, and it, and it took off. It really captured something in the in the zeitgeist about people wanting to have some practical channel for their despair and their anger. There was a turning point in the takeoff of Indivisible, a single event that changed everything. Tell us about that. Well, it was, uh, it was two-faceted. Uh, uh, for one thing, they, they'd asked uh, people who were interested and who were organizing around the guide to sign up on an online map. And they also found an outlet, an early outlet uh, or, or test case for what they were trying to do in the uh, attempt by uh, Congressman Goodlatte from Roanoke, Virginia. Our listeners may recall to absolutely gut 
the House Ethics Committee and the oversight process. Because of a lot of outcry, not just indivisibles, Goodlatte uh, and the Republicans wound up withdrawing that, that piece of legislation. But in the meantime, the indivisible folks based in D.C. made contact with, the, with some local activists in Roanoke, and they collaborated on a little event in Goodlatte's district office that was kind of a, a test case of, of what they wanted locals to do. The group wasn't allowed in, so it was in some ways a bust, but they took their own video of what happened and they posted it online and Rachel Maddow saw it uh, or her producer saw it and she wound up using it and using it as kind of a news hook to interview Ezra uh, Levin and talk about Indivisible. And uh, talking to Ezra and Leah, they said the night that Rachel talked about them, they had to turn off their phones because they were get they'd been getting they signed up for notifications when new groups put their put their names on the map, uh, and they couldn't sleep because they were getting so many buzzes and pings uh, all night long, and they literally had thousands more by the next morning. And how big do we think Indivisible is right now? It's very hard to say because at at one point more than five thousand, I have to say in quotes, groups were listed on the map. Somebody decided to sign up as, you know, indivisible small town USA, but they've never really had the capacity. They're, they're trying to do this now to, to figure out if all of those groups are still active or ever were active. You know, there are stories, the scholar, the Harvard scholar, Theta Scotchpole has done some research on this and, and Indivisible has too. And they admit, you know, they'll find out that, that somebody who signed up was just one guy with a mailing list who never carried out any activities, whereas others are incredibly uh, well-organized groups with hundreds of, of active local participants. So the, the best estimate is there are probably more than a thousand groups out there, but they have confirmed that they've got somebody in all 435 congressional districts. So that, that's, a kind, that's a kind of power for sure. What do we know about who are the local leaders in the 435 districts, the people who are not at headquarters in Washington, D.C.? Well, Theta Scotchpole, she found that they are overwhelmingly white college-educated women, 70 to 90 percent, she told me, with an average age of about 55. And that does line up with my own observation of indivisible groups. My first uh, exposure to a local indivisible group was a couple years ago when I covered the John Ossoff race in suburban Georgia, and there were several indivisible uh, groups active in that effort. And, you know, going to their meetings and, and talking to their leaders, they were, they were by and large middle-aged, I would say, white, white women. And that's been true as I've traveled around the country. So even though the founders are, are you know, 30-something, I think, somehow this, this concept appealed to a lot of women, suburban and urban and rural, for that matter, who were a little bit older and uh, probably some of them wishing that they had done more to elect the first female president, Hillary Clinton, in 2016. In 2018, the indivisible groups were very active in the congressional races and supporting Democratic challengers especially. The big question is, what are indivisible groups doing now in the primary season? That's the real subject of your reporting. What did you find out? 
Well, I found out that that primaries, whether they are at the state, local, congressional, or presidential level, uh, are very controversial within Indivisible. They have actually divided uh, some local groups when, when they've tried to weigh in. And so, especially as the national organization has ramped up and tried to play more of a role in national politics, there have been a, there have been another uh, excuse me a number of flashpoints of tension. But the question of whether or not to endorse in the Democratic primary has has emerged as probably the biggest one so far. By all measures that I'm aware of, including Indivisible's own attempts at surveys, most of the local groups. Uh, are, would, would, would rather they not endorse uh, in the presidential primary. There are still 20, at least 20 candidates, maybe 10 are viable. And in their early surveys, uh, Indivisible has found real variation in who their members uh, are, are supporting. But more than 90% of them currently support more than one person. So the Indivisible grassroots groups don't want to endorse anyone in the Democratic primaries right now, but doesn't that mean they're letting other activist groups have the impact and the power? Doesn't this mark the sort of decline of Indivisible as a force within the Democratic Party? Well, I would say no. Uh, Certainly, the the national leadership frames it much the way you do, that other groups are are making this choice, other groups are going to line up with, with candidates, and this is a chance to have real impact on the issues we care about, which are immigration reform and democracy reform and and all good things like that. Now, I should say some local people do support this idea, but the vast majority that I've talked to and even in surveys I've seen, they don't. What they say is that indivisible strength is pulling together people on the local level to work on issues that are local priorities. Sometimes uh, that involves elections, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, They were very, very important in the fight to preserve and protect the Affordable Care Act, for instance, and that at the local level, we have seen local groups split up, uh, at least temporarily, over the issue of endorsing even locally. So, So the point that the opponents make is that this could fracture cohesion in these local groups. And one of the, one of the great things that I saw, John, and you and I talked about this uh, over, over 2017 and 2018, was that not just Indivisible, but a lot, of, a lot of progressive groups, they worked really hard to heal the rifts that opened up during the bruising 2016 primary. And Indivisible really took the lead on doing that, both at the national and local level. And so folks are saying, why would we recreate that strife or, or, or rather take the risk of recreating that strife? There have been some attempts to survey Indivisible members about who they want to win the nomination. What can you tell us about that? Well, Indivisible national leaders cautioned me not to take those attempts that seriously. However, they put them out there, so I'm a reporter. I'm at least going to report on them. And, you know, in some ways they've been all over the maps. I would say uh, consistently Elizabeth Warren has done well. Kamala Harris 
did very well in the first two uh, and not so well in the third, perhaps reflecting the fact that the membership is overwhelmingly female, those two women consistently do well. But Joe Biden has done better than Bernie Sanders, which surprises some people. Uh, And so, you know, one scenario where some people, even some local people have said, an endorsement makes sense is let's say uh, that the the race comes down to Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren. Well, it might seem self-evident that Elizabeth Warren would be the quote indivisible candidate, right? And that 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 may be what happens. You know, some of the local, the staunch local opponents of an endorsement would say, but why would you even bother doing that? It would be obvious that she is probably ideologically the closest. But also, if I'm organizing in Dubuque, Iowa, and we've got a lot of folks who are still diehard Joe Biden fans, why are we going to, you know, fracture that group? Why are we going to turn away uh, the Biden fans or the Bernie fans or the Buttigieg fans uh, or the Harris fans in in the event that it, it would, you know, would be Warren over Harris? That could be racially divisive as well. So, there, if you look at, at it from the point of view of the folks on the ground, there's a lot of risk to endorsing. And if you listen to the staunchest critics of the idea, the, the, the risks out, outweigh the rewards. So if Indivisible is not going to work for a candidate in the primaries, what are they going to do between now and the Democratic National Convention, which is, you know, many months away? Well, I mean, locally, there are lots of races to work on. You know, Indivisible Roanoke, which I mentioned earlier, they they helped flip some uh, Virginia House of Delegates seats in 2017. Uh, they helped elect some, somebody who lost her race uh, in 2017, went on to join the Roanoke City Council in 2018, and they flipped the Roanoke City Council Democratic. There are lots of of local, state, regional, congressional races to be involved in. Uh, And one of the people that I interviewed who is an uh, an opponent of endorsements was was very strong about the fact that way too much progressive money and time goes into the presidential races every four years while we've seen, and I've written about this, the Democrats get their clocks cleaned at the statehouse level. So there's plenty of work to do apart from getting involved in presidential primary. There are also Indivisible uh, wants to play a role in in budget battles. They want to be part of a – they are part of a coalition calling on Congress to reduce funding for ICE uh, and and move on other forms of of immigration reform. There are lots of issues to be active on if they decide not to get involved in the presidential race. Joan Walsh's report on Indivisible is the cover story in the new issue of The Nation. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. 
Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Music